can turn with me to Mark chapter 13 this morning. Mark chapter 13. Thank you for that ministry and song, Brother Mac. Uh, um, you know, our relationship with God can be clearly seen by what our initial reaction is to the idea that God is very near. When we are far from Him, when we're living for ourselves, that reality is, is a convicting thing. It's a fearful thing. Like when your parent finds out that you're doing something you shouldn't. But when you're close to the Lord, when you love Him, that presence is very comforting. It's, 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 it's the peace that passes all understanding, that when you're in trouble, He's right there. How can I stray? How can I falter when God is near? We thank you for that wonderful truth from God's Word, Psalm 139, as you mentioned. Today, we're going to be in Mark chapter 13, as we continue through our series, through the book. Mark chapter 13 is a chapter that has no little disagreement regarding its meaning. Even as I was studying for this message and the previous message and the message for next week, it depends on just which commentary you pick up. And uh, you'll find different approaches, different ideas, and the reason for that is because Mark chapter 13 is talking about the end times. The end times. And there's just a few different ideas about the end times within Christianity. But I feel like it's a sad thing that oftentimes eschatology, which is the term meaning the study of the end times, it's a sad thing that can be such a sticky subject, that it's considered divisive. Everyone has a different opinion, but sometimes it's easier just to conclude, well, you know, we'll just, we can't really know. So we'll just kind of wait until we get there and find out, see who's right, see who's wrong. And I think this is an unfortunate conclusion to make as Christians. And while there are differences of opinions, and we should know how to dwell in unity with those with different opinions about the last days, to completely write off eschatology as a meaningless and pointless study means you're missing out on a source of confidence and comfort that God has provided for you in his scripture. The truth is, God has actually given us a lot of specifics about what will happen in the last days. Some of those specifics are mentioned in our passage today, and I hope that as we walk through this passage, the effect for us is twofold. The number one, we realize that this book that we read, that we hold in our hands, is an incredible, supernatural, inspired, and authoritative book that tells the whole story of the universe, and we can trust these words. And secondly, that God's plan is sure, and we can take comfort in that fact. But as we look in our passage today, we'll be beginning our reading in Mark chapter 13, verse 14. But let's catch up to where we were from last week. Last week, we read the first verses of Mark chapter 13, where Jesus foretells the destruction of the temple, which was very troubling to the disciples. And so when they hear about the destruction of the temple, they ask Jesus, they say, Jesus, when is this all going to happen? In their mind, they're thinking, when are the last days going to come? Because when they saw the end of their world, they were thinking, well, it's the end of the world. If the temple is going to be destroyed, then that means that surely the end is coming. So Jesus, what are the signs about the end of his coming, uh, your return? How can we know? And we read last week that Jesus kind of manages their expectations a little bit and tells them, wait, there's some other things you have to look forward to. You're going to see wars and rumors of wars. You're going to see disaster. You're going to see famine. You're going to see all these things. But the end is not yet. Last week was all about what is not indicators of the end. 
which ironically are the very things that we usually look at as indicators of the end. Wars, rumors of wars, famine, disease, all of these things. We think, surely the end is coming, and Jesus right there in Mark 13 says, no, that means it's not the end yet. This is the course of human history. This is, this is what's going to be happening in the years to come. And we mentioned last week that while we should anticipate the Lord's return, we should not speculate. We should not set dates. We should not try to predict when the Lord will come for his church. But that is not to say that God does not give us clear indications of what the last days look like. And that's, in fact, exactly what Jesus does in our passage, starting in verse 14. After having set the expectations for the immediate future for his disciples, in Mark chapter 14, Jesus says, but when you see something else in relation to the temple, then you do know that the end is coming. So let's read our passage today, Mark chapter 13, verse 14, and we'll read down through verse 27. But when you shall see the abomination of desolation, spoke of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let him that readeth understand. Then let them that be in Judea flee to the mountains, and let him that is on the housetop not go down into the house, neither enter therein, to take anything out of his house. And let him that is in the field not turn back again, for to take up his garment. But woe to them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. And pray, that ye, that, pray ye that our flight be not in the winter, for in those days shall be affliction, such as was not from the beginning of the creation which God created unto this time neither shall be. And except the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he hath chosen, he hath shortened the days. And then if any man shall say to you, lo, here is Christ, or lo, here he is, believe him not. For false Christs and false prophets shall arise and shall show signs and wonders to seduce, if it were possible, even the elect. But take ye heed. Behold, I have foretold you all things. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light. And, as, and the stars of heaven shall fall and the powers that are in the heaven shall be shaken. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then shall he send his angels and shall gather together his elect from the four winds and from the uttermost part of the earth to the uttermost part of the heaven. In our passage today, you clearly see the dark and then the dawn. The darkness of the last days before the dawn of Christ's return. Let's pray and ask God to guide us as we look at this passage together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you give us clarity, that you know all of things that you have foretold all things. And while we cannot speculate, we do not know the whole timeline of your plan, we know that you have a timeline and you have a plan and we can anticipate that as we look forward to your return. Give us guidance and understanding as we read this passage today. In your son's name we pray, amen. As I mentioned last week, this passage has a, a, a couple of different interpretations. While some believe that this is talking about the last days, which, which personally I do as well, other people will say that, that this is a passage that foretells the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD by Rome when they besieged the city. 
But as I read this passage today, as we read it today together, I'd hope you'd realize how, how, why would you, why would you have that opinion? How could you make such a claim with the description Jesus gave in verse 19, that such affliction, such as was not from the beginning of creation, which God created until this time, neither shall be. Can we say the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD fits that description? That'd be hard to say. What is included in all of creation? The flood, right? That's a, that was a big deal. This is worse than that. And so I think clearly as we look at this passage, Jesus is pointing to something far greater, far more dark, far more serious in the future as he looks ahead to the second coming of Christ. And today we are going to dip into some detail. But I hope that as we dip into some detail that you see the purpose for it. Again, just as we can veer towards speculation when we talk about the end times, sometimes when we talk about the end times, we get so fascinated about all the details and the dates and the timeline that we forget the reason why we are even talking about it. And so I hope that as we go through this, I am able to communicate to you the why, not just the what, not just the ooh, that's cool, but also this is why this is in Scripture. Let's look at, first of all, together, the darkness of the tribulation that Jesus foretells, starting in verse 14. In verse 14, remember, the, the disciples are thinking about the temple, and they're thinking about the destruction of the temple, and they think, well, if the temple is destroyed, surely that's the sign of the end. Verse 14, he points to something else about the temple that happens in relation to it that does indicate the, the end of all things. It's not the destruction of it. It's the abomination of desolation. We see that in verse 14. It says, but when you shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Now, we do not have time to dig into a whole timeline of eschatological events. But some level of understanding about this particular reference is needed. This is, this is a specific event that is foretold in the book of Daniel. And so, since it's in Scripture, let's understand what is meant. And as Mark himself inserts right here, he says, let the reader understand. I believe this insertion also points to the fact that Jesus is saying these things primarily for the benefit of those who be reading these words later. Or perhaps he's saying, I don't understand him. Make sure that maybe the reader will. I don't know. But it, it, he inserts that to say, this is for the reader. That those who found themselves in this final chapter of history would be able to recognize what is going on. The Gospel of Matthew in this parallel account also speaks of the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel. So we're going to turn to that passage and see if we can understand what Jesus is referring to. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 to get a frame of reference about this indicator that points to the end of all things. Daniel chapter 9 verse 24. I'll have it up on the screen as well. This is a fascinating passage. A comforting passage. Daniel chapter four, or Daniel chapter nine, excuse me, twenty-four through twenty-seven. God is revealing to the prophet Daniel the course of history. We read in verse twenty-four: Seventy weeks has been decreed for your people in your holy city to finish transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that 
from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. And even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. Verse 27, And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will one come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. What is going on in this passage? There is a lot here. But if we read in verse 24, we find out that this is an overview of redemptive history. He says 70 weeks are allotted for all of these things. And what's included in these things? To finish transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy place. He tells Daniel, 70 weeks are determined. And you think 70 weeks, that's not very long. Surely 70 weeks has passed since then. Well, in the Hebrew, 70 weeks means 77s. When you see the word weeks in our English language, it's just, in Hebrew, it's simply 70 units of seven. And when you look at the timeline and the, thing that these, and the time in which these things are accomplished, it's clear that he's talking about 70 units of seven, or 70 sevens. In this time period, 70 sevens, 70 sevens, what will be accomplished? The course of human history, God's redemptive plan. Let's ask this question, first of all, as we look at numbers and, and dates. Is it, is it legitimate for us to look at prophecies with numbers and years and try to calculate? I think it can get out of hand. There's a whole area of biblical study called numerology, which is kind of wacky, and we're not going to get to the wacky side of things. <laughs> While we don't want to speculate, where the, where the Scripture prophesies specifically, what should we do? Interpret it specifically. In fact, look at the beginning of, of, of Daniel chapter 9. Look at the beginning of Daniel chapter 9. We read of Daniel interpreting another prophecy. This prophecy was given by Jeremiah saying that Israel would be in captivity with the Babylonians for 70 years. Okay, there's a specific timeline. Look in verse 2 of Daniel chapter 9. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. And if you look at the date of the king ruling at that time, the date of this prophecy, this is 66 years into that prophecy. So what's going on here? Daniel's reading the 70-year prophecy. He's looking at the number and he's saying, God says 70 years. It's been 66 years. We're almost there. We're four years away. And so he interprets it specifically. Why? Because Scripture gives a specific prophecy. And so he perceives and calculates the time is almost up, and so he continues to pray and ask God for his grace and intervention with his people. 
So when we look at this passage at the end of chapter 9, with the 77s, we should interpret it specifically. Well, let's consider what this prophecy says. Verse 25 talks about history until the coming of Christ. Remember, this prophecy is written hundreds of years before Christ is ever on the scene. And it says in verse 25 that from the word to restore and build Jerusalem, which hasn't happened yet from Daniel's perspective, to the coming of a Messiah, an anointed one, is 62 or, sorry, seven units of seven plus 62 sevens, which is 483 years. So when did the decree go out to rebuild Jerusalem? Well, you can read about that in Nehemiah chapter two, where Nehemiah stands before King Artaxerxes and is permitted to go back and rebuild the walls. That's 445 BC. Count 483 years from 445 BC using the Jewish calendar, and you land right around AD 30, AD 32. Who's on the scene? Jesus the Messiah. Verse 26 gives us history after Christ. That after these 69 weeks, Christ is crucified. It says right there in the passage, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. This is scripture. This is showing exactly what happened to Jesus hundreds of years prior. There will be this unit of time from when the command to rebuild Jerusalem goes out to the time of a Messiah. It'll be this length of time. You look at the calendar, it's that length of time. After that length of time, what happens? That Messiah is going to be cut off. The Messiah, the anointed one, cut off? This is part of the messianic prophecies that the Jewish people were ignoring. Surely he can't be crucified. Surely he can't be killed. It's right there in Scripture. And after he is cut off, what will happen? Rome will enter and destroy Jerusalem. The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, this is referring to 70 AD. The people at Rome will come in, destroy the sanctuary, destroy the city. And then, what happens after that? Look in verse 26. What, is, what does God tell will happen? Even to the end, there will be what? War. Desolations are determined. Now, stop. What do we learn in Mark chapter 13, verse 7? When you hear wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. Right there in Daniel. Even to the end, after the destruction of the temple, there will be war, and these desolations are what? Determined. These things must take place. Everything that, Christ, that is playing out in the time of Christ is exactly what is prophesied hundreds of years earlier. And right here in Daniel, we learn that there will be a period of time after the 69 weeks and before the 70th weeks that is unknown. And Jesus clarifies that in Mark 13 when he says the end is not yet. Everything you've read up to the 69 weeks has been fulfilled, but the end is not yet because there are wars and rumors of wars determined. And unknown to Daniel, there is a part of God's plan that the New Testament refers to as a mystery, unrevealed to the Old Testament prophets called the church. And this is where the church finds itself, a period that has kept a mystery from the previous generation. We read in Ephesians chapter 3, 4 through 6, that when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has been now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. 
This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So that's where we are now. What about the 70th week? We see that in verse 27. One week, and again, a week is a unit of seven, so seven years. Scripture says that at the end of the age, there will be a seven-year period, which the Scripture refers to as the tribulation. And we learn that a prince figure will make a firm covenant with the many for seven years. You read that right in verse 27 of our passage in Daniel. But halfway through that seven-year period, the middle of the week, what happens? It says he puts a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wings of abominations will come one who makes desolate. There you see it, the abomination of desolation. Halfway through this final period of seven years. And then following the halfway marker is a great time of great distress and tribulation up until the complete destruction is poured out on Antichrist. Now let's turn back over to Mark chapter 13. Back in Mark chapter 13, what does he point to? He points to the abomination of desolation. And he says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. He's pointing to that very event prophesied by Daniel that takes place in the temple halfway through this tribulation period. You may ask, well, why does Jesus point to the halfway marker of those seven years? Rather than the beginning of the seven years, why not mention the rapture, which I believe happens before the seven years? That's a different message. (laughs) Or the peace treaty for seven years. Well, remember the nature of the disciples' question. What are they asking about? The end times in relation to the temple. The temple's being destroyed, so it's the end times. Jesus tells the disciples that the temple's destruction is not the sign of the end, but something would happen to the temple that would signify the end. And what is that thing? The abomination of desolation. And when that happens at the temple, you know that the end is coming. Now, would the disciples see this? Would they be here for this? No. The disciples would be there for the wars and rumors of wars and the persecution and all those other horrible things. These words are primarily for the reader's benefit, particularly those, I think, who find themselves in the tribulation period itself because God's word is eternal. God's word will be there even in the last days. There will be souls saved during those seven years that need the word of God, and they will be able to pick up these words, read it, and see God has a plan. The Old Testament prophets wrote of the sufferings of Christ of the New Testament, knowing that they were not serving themselves but us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. That there's Old Testament prophecies that weren't primarily for them but for us today. And these words today, while profitable to us, are also for the benefit of a generation to come. There's war, famine, deceivers, persecution. That's a life. That's what we're in right now. But that's just the beginning of birth pains. But when the abomination of desolation comes, the clock is ticking. And so he says, when this happens, this is a sign of the end. And then he points to an urgent escape in verse 15 through 18. Those in Jerusalem should flee immediately. Don't pack up your stuff. Hope you're not pregnant or nursing, because that makes it harder. Pray that it doesn't happen in winter. That, I know that's foreign to, uh, to you in Florida. <laughs> but there's this thing called winter, and it... 
and it makes the roads icy, and there's white stuff that falls from the sky, and it's really hard to travel uh, through, through those conditions. So you have to adapt it a little bit to the culture, I understand. But it says, don't do it in winter. This will be an urgent evacuation of the Jews from Jerusalem because now the great tribulation is upon them and the Antichrist, as we read in scripture in the book of Revelation, will unleash his fury and God's wrath will be poured out on the earth. This is the second half of the tribulation that he's describing here. And how long is that period of time? It's three and a half years, 42 months, or 1,260 days. We see that in Daniel. We also see that exact time frame in the book of Revelation. Listen to this. Revelation chapter 13, verses 5 through 7. The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for how long? 42 months, three and a half years. It opens its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. That is, those who dwell in heaven. And also it will be allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. If you look in Revelation chapter 12, verses 5 through 6, we see the imagery of a woman about to give birth and a, and a dragon seeking to devour the child. And it says, she, she shall give birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness. And where she was, uh, has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for how long? 1,260 days. Israel, the birthplace of the Messiah, will flee into the wilderness during this time of great wrath and is protected for how long? 1,260 days, 42 months, three and a half years. The Bible's specific. It gives us the time frame. And it says, when this thing happens, when the abomination of desolation comes, there will be great distress. There will, be, there will be this intense evacuation, this urgent escape, as God's wrath and the fury of the Antichrist is poured out, which he describes in verses 19 through 23, this intense distress. For in those days there will be such a tribulation as not had been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. In other words, this tribulation is so bad that it will be far worse than anything experienced in the history of the world. Which again, I find it fascinating that we can, some might conclude that this passage is talking about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. In fact, things will be so bad that God must cut short the days. And he does it for the sake of the elect whom he chose, as we read in verse 20. But if you, and if you believe, like me, that the church is raptured, taken away, spared from this seven-year period, who is this elect that he's talking about? Well, it's quite clear. If you read Revelation, there are those who come to know the Lord during the tribulation period, we read of believers who are persecuted and killed at the hand of the Antichrist. We read of 144,000 witnesses God chooses in Revelation chapter 14. In fact, if you were to skip down to verse 27 of Mark 13, we read that when Christ comes a second time to rule on the earth, we read him gathering his elect from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. He has people in both heaven and earth, and he will gather them all together to rule with him on that day. And added to this distress is more deceivers and false prophets trying to lead the elect astray, if that were possible. This is the darkness of the tribulation 
What are we to conclude of all this? You ask Pastor Aaron, why go through all of that? Is it just a fascinating study where we get to chart out numbers and dates? Oh, it's far more than that. And I believe Jesus points to the answer in verse 23. Be on guard. I have told you these things beforehand. Jesus tells us with great detail what will happen at the end of time. And he tells us all these things beforehand. He did this several times for the disciples. And the reason why he did this for the disciples is clear. If you were to read in John 14, he tells his disciples about the coming Holy Spirit. That he was going back to the Father. And we read in verse 29 of John 14, Now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. Why does Jesus foretell these events that the disciples weren't even going to experience themselves? So that you may see that God's word is reliable and true. I hope as we go through this, you see that only a supernatural book could provide such detailed and accurate descriptions, not only of the future, but of the entire course of human history. And Daniel chapter 9, 24 through 27 is just one of those. We could go to Isaiah 53 where it talks about the the, the crucifixion of the Messiah in great detail. We could go after prophecy after prophecy that was predicted hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before and they are fulfilled with great detail. This is a supernatural book. This is not a book of myths. This is not a book written by men. This is a book written by the hand of God for us. The end of the story is already written. And no matter how dark those final chapters are, we see God's sovereign hand over the course of human history. Why go through all these details? Number one, so that you believe in him. Do you believe these words? Do you believe that the prophecy that that the Old Testament gives, pointing to now and pointing to the future, the prophecy that Jesus provides here in Mark 13 points to his reliability, the truth of this message? And why did he tell you these things? Right there in verse 23, be on guard, be ready, be alert. A belief leads to a response. That as you embrace God's truth, what should it do? How should it impact you? It should make you view your current situation in the future differently as you approach the days ahead. When we open this book, we are not looking at a book of fairy tales. We open a book that was written by the sovereign Lord of the universe who provides us a glimpse into his grand plan. This book is true. But be on guard. He's told you all these things beforehand so that there may be no doubt that he is the way, the truth, and the life. We've looked at the darkness, but it's about time we look at the the good side of this story, the light of Christ's return. Let's read in verse 24. But in those days when, after that tribulation, we see the great darkness breaking away to the glorious dawn of Christ's return and reign. And what we're about to read will happen after those horrible days of tribulation. We'll see the sun and moon darkened, the stars falling, the powers in heaven shaken, which we read of in Revelation chapter 6, Revelation chapter 8. 
the last gasp of the Antichrist, the final judgments of God's wrath on the world, and then, verse 26, and then you will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and great glory. Consider with me Christ's power in this passage. Jesus, who is now only a lowly servant, is going to come again with great power. The one who lowered himself to the point of death, even the death on a cross, would one day be highly exalted and every knee would bow to him. In fact, just in Mark, in the next chapter, Mark chapter 14, when Jesus is standing before the council, who's about to arrest him and hand him over to be crucified, he tells them this exact thing plainly. Mark 14, 61 through 62, again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. To those who say Jesus never professed to be God, what did we just read? Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The humble servant, the crucified Christ, will return someday in power and glory, and he will be preeminent. He will exercise authority over all. And again, we read of this exact prophecy back in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, where Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You know, in our current day of distress and sorrow and pain and wars and rumors of wars and chaos, don't forget that there will come a day when Christ will come in dominion and authority and he comes to rule and reign. And when we turn to the final pages of the Bible, we see him described as a rider on a white horse, in Revelation chapter 19, we read, Then I saw heaven open to behold a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The prophecies of Christ's first coming are just as sure as the prophecies of his second coming. And we look at the prophecies of everything about his first coming and his death and his life and everything that he fulfilled. And we see those coming true with specificity, with clarity. We need to look at his second coming with the same amount of confidence. These things will happen. He will come in power. He will come in preeminence. And he will come for his people. Verse 27, then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. All his people, his chosen, 
those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, those who've been washed by his blood for the forgiveness of sins and newness of life, Christ points to the final gathering of all children, both, of, both in heaven and earth. Those who endured, those who were martyred, those who were raptured, Christ is making all things new. And Jesus tells the disciples, this is what is to come. In the very next chapter, we're going to see the plot to kill Jesus unfold. But in that moment leading up to it, Jesus is showing his disciples, this is all part of the plan. And one day, I will return in power and glory, and all my children will be gathered together. Again, we must ask, what profit? Why do we look at these things? What profit is there in pointing ahead to end times prophecy? Is it just fun to speculate? Is it fun to make charts and graphs? No, there's a specific purpose for considering the end of all things. It's comfort. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we see the comforting reality of eschatology. In teaching the church about Christ's coming to take his bride, the church, we read in verses 16 through 18, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And why does he share all these things with the Thessalonian church? The same reason why I share these things with you this morning. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. How sad it is that so many of our conversations on eschatology end in debate and disagreement. May disagreements never overshadow the main purpose of studying the end times. Encouragement, comfort, assurance. Christ will come again. There will be great darkness, but then light will burst through. And Jesus, our conquering king, will descend in the clouds of heaven, our Savior, and we will be reunited to him. And that is sure to take place. But first he had to die. Because part of his grand plan was to take our penalty on the cross. So that one day he would have a people to gather to him in glory. And just as we talked about how the presence of God is either an encouraging thing or a comfort, oh, the return of Christ is the same way. How does that strike you? Is it, is it, is it scary? Is it, oh man, I'm not ready. Or is it a comfort? Christ will return. My pain, my sorrow, my tears, it'll all be wiped away. And Christ will return in glory. And let me end this morning with just the last few words of the entire Bible. Revelation chapter 22, verses 20 through 21. We read these words. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And what is our response as his people? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you have the entire story written.
we thank you that although we have a very limited perspective right now, and we have burdens, and we have fears, and we have trials, we thank you, Lord, that you know the end from the beginning. You are the Alpha and the Omega. I pray you give us confidence in your word. This book that you've given us is true. It is your very word. And in it, not only do we see the course of human history, the entire plan, but we see the plan of redemption, the message of the gospel, how we can be part of your people. And I pray if there's anyone here who is not yet part of your people, who has not embraced you as Savior, that they might even look at the reality of your future coming, and it might prompt them to see their need to embrace you as their Savior. Lord, I pray for Christians that whatever struggle is going, in, going on in their life right now, they might look at your sovereignty, your control, and that one day all sin and death and sorrow and tears will be removed. And so we pray.